0: The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS, the standard in the rare coin grading industry. The a &A World Fair of Money is just right around the corner, and if you'd like to get your coins graded on-site, PCGS will be at the show accepting submissions. To learn more, visit www.pcgs.com. In this episode of the Coin Week podcast, we talk to Daniel Frank Sedwick about his recent election victory. To the position of president in the International Association of Professional Numismatists. We learn a little bit about the IAPN and what its role is in the hobby. We'll hear all about it from Dan next on the Coin Week podcast. Hi, Dan. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week podcast. Thank you very much. Dan, you've been elected president of the IAPN, the International Association of Professional Numismatists. It's a a prestigious organization, but many collectors are not familiar with it. Please tell our listeners what the IAPN is and what role it plays in the coin hobby.
1: As I was developing as a coin dealer, I always knew that there was an organization, in my mind, that was overseas, even though now it's easily thought of as as global, but even 10 years ago, that concept might have been a little bit different. Um, But it's an organization that's been around since 1951, so it's uh, pretty much one of the longest-standing organizations of professional coin dealers, and uh, it has always, within that time, had a a very high uh, standard of of ethics and a a code of, of honor among the dealers, You know, rather than being something like the ANA or the ANS where it's collectors and dealers together, basically anybody who is interested in coins, this is an organization that is restricted to professionals and and specifically dealers in in coins or related to that. And um, a lot of what we do uh, within the IAPN is basically stand up for each other, you know, examine what kind of uh, uh, challenges are being presented in the field and, and what we as an organization can do uh, beyond what the individual can do, and in a way, it to me it feels like a, a kind of like a medieval guild if you were where uh, you know all the different uh, craftsmen would get together and, and kind of unionize uh, it 's it's sort of like that, but um, my interest uh, obviously uh, was starting out as admiration, and then I was accepted into it, and uh, little by little i 've um, done more for the organization
0: and uh, was asked to be president and uh, now here I am. How unusual is it for an American coin dealer to hold the position of president in the IAPN? You know, the United States coin dealers make up maybe
1: about half of the membership. So there's quite a lot of uh, representation there. And I do know that uh, there is at least a tradition, if not a requirement, uh, that from one term to the next, from one president to the next, it swaps between Europe and the United States. Uh, so, my immediate predecessor, um, uh, whom I respect very much, uh, is a gentleman from Switzerland who's held the post for six years, and before he became president, there was um uh, Eric McFadden of uh, CNG was president for one term. Uh, before him was a president from uh, the UK, and then uh, for uh, three terms was Arthur Friedberg of the United States. So. Um, y- y- like I say, if you go back far enough, I'm sure you'll, you'll find plenty more um, U.S. presidents. It's just uh, after such a long term for Arnie Kirsch of Switzerland, it's nice to have the presidency back in the United States.
0: It seems to me that the coin market in the U.S. and Europe are dramatically different. We are fortunate that we live in a very large and for the most part stable country uh, economically and that there is an intense interest amongst collectors here – for coins and money that carries the story of American history with it. Europe is made of much smaller countries and has experienced far more turmoil. Not only do their coins have the potential of being much older than ours, uh, but uh, also much more diverse. Uh, In America, we have essentially classified, categorized, and commoditized our coins in ways that just aren't possible to carry out in Europe. And in America, we have adopted a grading system and a certification apparatus that dominates our market. Uh, The Europeans have been reluctant to do that, and their collecting culture is markedly different than our own. So as an American dealer involved in the IAPN, under your leadership, how do you hope to bridge that cultural collecting and dealing divide?
1: Well, it's a good question in as much as it's exactly what the IAPN serves to do. Uh, As I mentioned, probably about half of the membership is United States coin coin dealers, Uh, not necessarily dealers in United States coins, but dealers within the United States. Uh, So they bring a a different perspective to all the Europeans uh, in the IAPN. And let's not forget also that there are a few Asian uh, dealers, uh, one African dealer and then even a, a dealer in South America, uh and we are looking to expand membership in in all of those uh fringe areas if you will uh but the idea uh behind it all is to kind of bring all of our experiences together and try to if not um, homogenize it at least see eye to eye on on the most important things which generally these days concern uh governments and uh the Illegality or uh, restrictions, rather, of um, import and export. Uh, it's a big problem. The uh, the concept of cultural heritage crossing borders uh, has full scale gone into coins. And it's uh, in addition to my role as president, I'm also the um, chairman of the International Trade Committee. And on a constant basis, I'm getting emails and phone calls related to uh various changes in um import and export restrictions either from the EU or the United States or in uh, individual countries in the in the uh European Union uh, or the UK uh, it's a big problem it's a big issue for anybody who deals in coins that cross borders it's easy enough for um coin dealers in the United States who never ship coins overseas or receive coins from overseas uh but for all of us who are in the IAPN uh, we are dealers who most certainly send coins across borders all the time, and it's a, a very important issue. Uh, so it's very important for all of us to, uh, like I say, kind of be on the same page and fight together um, as opposed to just on an individual level. And uh, that's, I guess that it, whether or not uh, we have the same collecting habits in Europe or, or U.S., uh, the fact is we're all dealing in coins. And we all have to kind of come up with a good way to look at coins on, from a legal and, and government perspective. Um, so that's, that's a, probably one of the biggest roles of the IAPN.
0: It's interesting when you talk about cultural property, and I know that we've had this conversation before, especially as it is the case with your business selling treasure coins and coins uh, recovered from famous shipwrecks, that it's because collectors appreciate the historical significance and beauty and intrinsic value of these objects that many of these pieces have survived for as long as they have. A government would have taken the bullion off of the Atocha had that ship arrived at its intended port and converted it into something else. Not only that, but these objects are also not recovered by governments typically, but by private interests using private capital to fund the recovery effort. You know, a government has tremendous resources and uh, they could put these resources into place to recover these objects should they desire. But recovering shipwreck gold never seems to rise to the top of the list of priorities for national governments. So again, the only reason we have these objects to collect is because the collector market and industry supports the preservation of these objects.
1: Yeah. You know, and it's, it's easy for us in the business to say that and um, all day long and with my colleagues, we just shake our heads and say, how could this possibly mis- be misconstrued like that? Uh, but the, the fact is, if you talk to uh, the general public who have no knowledge about coins or anything related to coins or antiquities, they're very much swayed by uh, the, um, the publicity that is given to what I call the archaeological lobby. Uh, and there are various organizations and individuals who drive that, very powerful and very uh, well-funded uh, that I won't mention by name, but uh, it's a very difficult obstacle for us professionals because they run the media, and the media basically teach the, the general population that, hey, anything cultural or anything that has to do with the past, anything that uh, could possibly have any connection to the past and might be valuable, that should not be traded openly that, or at all. And that's the challenge that we've got, and, and I, like I say, it's easy for us as coin people to, to laugh at that and say it makes no sense, but you'd be surprised to many other people. In fact, the majority of people, that makes all the sense in the world. And so our challenge is to try to reverse that uh, while also keeping our noses clean, and it's it's just not so easy, unfortunately. And, and the, the ridiculous part of all of it is that uh, if you were to say, okay, uh you cannot have uh, um, private ownership of coins or antiquities that it should all go back to the countries of origin as you say you know that's it's all going to disappear at that point it'll get melted down or lost or stolen again um, and it it really is it makes no sense at all um, but i might mention that really the source of all of this is something that is known as the UNESCO convention of 1970 uh which was you know a good idea at its in the time but it just painted in too broad of a stroke and and uh, the everything that was included in this um convention uh as far as co- protecting cultural heritage uh, it was a it's a long list of things and one thing that's specifically mentioned is coins and um so any country that has signed on to this uh this UNESCO agreement um is beholden to uh, watched its cultural heritage in a numismatic sense and that's where we're running into trouble um you know it's already on the books and it's a question of just enforcement uh you you can argue the ridiculousness of it all day long but the fact is that's that's what's out there and um you know any small country that has no power of its own to stop looting from its own um areas is going to use this to their fullest advantage, and that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of uh, Middle Eastern, North African countries, known as MENA countries, that are having a lot of trouble uh, during wartime keeping uh, their own precious uh, sites from being looted. Uh, their, their answer, rather than uh, trying to police it themselves, is to get bigger market countries like the United States to sign on to agreement that says, "Hey, any of any material from that was made in your country, that crosses the border into the United States, will automatically be examined at least, and confiscated at worst, and um, if confiscated, sent back to the the country of origin, even though that may be a coin that left the country many centuries before that country even existed as a current political entity." Um so again it it's it's ridiculous but we're fighting something that's been on the books now for 50 years or almost 50 years and uh um it's kind of hard to explain why it's it's taken this long to get to this point except to say that right now we have a very well-funded archaeological lobby that is that is calling the shots and all we're doing is trying to mitigate the damage and and uh survive for another day basically. Our main fight actually is to shift the burden of proof because what's happening now is that the various governments are saying, okay, you have to prove that this, this coin left this country centuries ago and has passed through auctions in Europe and, and whatever. And that doesn't happen. You know, there's most of the coins out there do not have paperwork with them. You cannot prove necessarily when they were, when they left Greece or Italy or, or wherever. And so that's the crux of the problem, and for whatever reason, that burden of proof has been shifted to the importer, and it needs to go back on the government of origin. If Greece, for example, says, look, we had an excavation in the 1970s and all this material was taken, um, that's up to them to prove that the coin that you have was from that excavation. That's not to say they don't do that, but these days their their, uh, strategy instead is to say, well, look, if you can't prove that it didn't come from this, Then we're going to assume it did and and we can take it anyway. That's the big problem.
0: Weren't we in a situation a few years ago where there was a a sting operation where a junk box of unpedigreed coins of low value was offered uh, for sale to a coin dealer in Germany who agreed to buy them uh, only to later face arrest and confiscation at a German coin show? I I seem to remember something like this happening.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm vaguely familiar with that at, at Numismata and yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. It, you know, this, the burden of proof should be on the, uh, the, the claimant. It should be on the, the country that says this was illegally taken. And, and it, rightly so, if, if something is taken from Syria in, in uh, like the past year or something like that, there should be some record of it. If a museum was looted and the material was taken from the museum, there should be some record and some way to prove that that came from there but my my point is that rather than than having that burden of proof, it's the other way around you have to prove that that's not where your coins came from and it's a very difficult um uh, task and impossible in fact, but um that's why most of what I've been doing for the i a p n as international trade chairman is to work with the government in the e u and and the United States government through attorneys and lobbyists uh to make sure that the the wording is at least um, where it needs to be there 's not much we can do to to fight uh the concept of coins being- ca- cultural patrimony, although that is we are attempting that too, but we have to kind of take it one challenge at a time and uh um, you know we we do what we can and and uh um, we pay what we can too uh, again we 're this uh, in numismatics we're we 're really just a small lobby unfortunately uh we 're up against a very big lobby with a lot of money but the good news is that uh, the feedback we get is that the numismatic lobby is uh, actually quite strong for for what it is. So we just uh, we keep trying that, and uh, little by little we make some progress. We re drum some sense into the people in charge. Uh, we have, um, for example, we have IEPN members in the United States. Uh, recently, we had them write letters to their congressmen to fight an uh, anti-money laundering uh, initiative that was uh, defeated last year, and It'll be up for vote again this year, but uh, I expect that we'll have the same uh, type of campaign from our members to get together and, and understand what they need to do and then do it to, uh, to affect our government change.
0: So that's, that's mainly what we do with, with IAPN. So other than this issue, which I think we could both get worked up over and talk about it all day, uh, what are the other pressing issues that the IAPN is trying to address?
1: Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because I, you know, the one thing about international trade is that it is currently so negative and I don't like to, uh, dwell on the negative parts because there really is, uh, so much good stuff going on. I guess maybe another negative thing you could say is that, uh, the IAPN does a pretty good job of, of weeding out, uh, counterfeits. Um, the negative part being that there are so many counterfeits. <laughs> uh, but we're currently working to, um, make our website uh, quite a bit more dynamic in that regard um, and just kind of policing the business for uh, making sure that that companies are not selling counterfeits. Um, And then uh, lately we've been doing more to promote the hobby in general um, and get more interest together. Um, Probably our biggest um, impact in in that regard is the uh, annual IAPN Book Prize, and our um, chairman of, of that committee, uh, Peter Preston Morley of Dix, Noon, and Webb, has done an excellent job and uh, has come up with uh, many book titles every year for us to vote on for the uh, IAPN Book Prize. Uh, this year it happened to be won by an American, uh, Kathy Lorber, um, for um, a, a book on Greek coins that she uh, published through the ANS and uh she and the publisher will be on hand at the ANA show in um Rosemont, Illinois in August to receive the prize. I believe it's a $1000 it might be Swiss francs. I think it's 1000 Swiss francs and we'll have a cocktail party and a ceremony to celebrate that and uh what what the long and short of it is that uh with every year that has become more of a prestigious thing for authors and more and more authors are approaching us now and, and asking if they could be considered for the IEPN Book Prize. And um, even if they don't win, to them it's an honor to to be considered and to, to be voted on. Uh, as a matter of fact, the second place um, uh, book for this uh, particular year uh, was a book about um, U.S. gold coins by uh, John Danruther. Uh, so a lot of us in, in the IPN uh, from the United States side were, were very excited to see that there was, um, you know, that much interest in a book about U.S. coins. It's an excellent book and, and, uh, I think just seeing it helped, uh, European dealers to appreciate it. Um, but again, that's an example of where the author probably knew that, uh, it would be pretty hard to win against, uh, you know, in a, in an organization that's probably half European. Uh, but at the same time, with such a good showing it it really uh it impresses upon the the need around the world to um to just kind of expose themselves to other areas and and uh note that there are authors and and excellent works being published every year and in case I didn't mention it that's one of the requirements of the uh i a p n book prize is that the book has to be published in the year prior so uh we had something like twenty four titles in this uh in the running. And they were all published in the year twenty eighteen. So uh it's uh Peter's done a great job to expand that and um it's just very good to see the publicity that's that's happening behind that. Um we would uh also like to, you know, expand the the general membership of the IPN to just bring in more perspectives from different areas. We are uh we have a prospective member that we'll vote on next year from Argentina. Um I think that we have a, a prospective member possibly from Indonesia just a lot of different areas around the world that uh you know we hope to get represented in the IAPN so we can have different perspectives and and uh just share the um, share the field. I think that probably the most um, or the, the happiest and most enjoyable thing that we do is the uh the General Assembly known as the Congress every year. Um, uh as mentioned it was it took place in Carefree, Arizona this year. Uh, next year it'll be in Marseille, France. Uh, but the point is that every year it's in a different location around the world, and um, it's expensive to do. But uh, I think most of the IAPN members have have come to realize that it's a privilege to have the organization put this um, congress together in a different um, place around the world that you know you as a member might not otherwise uh, expose yourself to. You might not actually ever go to Marseille, France, except for a uh, you know a congress, for example. So. Um, that's, that really has been one of the biggest um, benefits of membership, and I think most of the members who have gone to these congresses appreciate that uh, you get to know your, your fellow numismatists from around the world, and, and uh, you uh, form relationships and, and end up doing business that you never thought you would do before, and um, that's the main, main
0: reason to be an IAPN member, I would say. What is the IAPN looking for specifically in a potential member? Well, first of all, it has to be a company. Um, I know that
1: um, PNG is is different and is on an individual basis, but um, just at, by contrast, uh, IAPN is is by com- company. So, uh, if you have a numismatic company, it's your company that that is voted on. And um, to be considered for membership, you have to, I think, be a, um, a um, established in the business for at least five years. You have to have some kind of authorship in your name, uh, whether it's an auction catalog or a book or, or uh, articles or, or um, I guess various other media can be considered these days, uh, web-related and so forth. Um, and then you have to be vetted by your peers. Basically, you when you um, apply for membership, uh, you go through a small process where you have to be sponsored by uh, people, and I think it's at least three different countries or two different continents. Um, and those sponsors will guide you along the way. Um, and then your application is sent out to the general membership. And if anybody's had any bad dealings with you for whatever reason, uh, that gets circulated and around. So uh, there's already a, a pretty good screening for, for uh, ethics at that point. And then uh, for a general vote, um, you know, there is some discussion at the uh, General Assembly of the Congress, you know, about each candidate uh but almost always if you've reached that stage you've already been vetted um by the your contemporaries and and uh, everyone's pretty well acknowledged at that point that you would make a pretty good candidate uh and what we're looking for is just more of what already exists you know uh, they don't have to be companies that have been around for 50 years although there are some um they can be relatively new companies uh, we voted in five new members in um, in Arizona i know that uh at least one of them is is a, a rather new company, but he's been around for at least five years. And, um, you know, while I would say that, you know, like any organization these days, we're looking for younger, newer um, membership, the fact is that uh, there are still quite a lot of older companies that, um, for one one reason or another, just never bothered to join the IAPN, and, and uh, we'd like to make known that they're welcome as well. And... Um, you know it's uh the main factor the, the the uh unifying factor is is all really comes down to ethics and uh we all have to follow a code of business uh, that I won't enumerate right now but there are various terms where we have to uh play the same rules you know we we can't put uh sold as is no returns in our auction catalogs things like that the kind of things that that a normal a uh, coin dealer would be doing in the course of business if he's an, an, an honorable and uh, knowledgeable dealer. Uh, that's what we're looking for. Now, I will say also that uh, as of this last Congress, we voted on a new class of membership that includes um, something other than strictly coin dealers. Uh, we call it the associate or associated member uh, with the same rights and and uh, fees Um, But it it applies to somebody, for example, in the the field of uh, coin media or um, website uh, management or um, uh, venues for holding auctions, uh, maybe coin shows, uh, where there's even been talk about uh, possibly museums or other organizations uh, being interested in in this type of uh, membership um and the idea is that uh as coin dealers we can share ideas around uh but at the, at the end of the day we all have other peripheral businesses that uh to, that serve the the coin community and um there's no reason they can't be members as well and and uh you know help to vote on on the type of things that come our way um so that that is a new class of membership that's open we're still trying to work out exactly you know, who would get invited or who would be interested in that level. Uh, but it's it's something to mention because um, I, more and more these days, I think that we're seeing some interest from um, areas outside of just strictly coin
0: dealers. Yeah, I can only speak for myself, you know, as the head of a publication. And I'm sure, you know, my colleague uh, in Germany, Ursula Kampmann, uh, at the publication Coins Weekly may, might feel the same way. We are, in essence, lubricators of numismatic discussion. You know, we help people understand sometimes very complex things about numismatics. And this requires uh, from us a fluid fluency in a wide range of topics. Uh, So it's nice to see that the IAPN is considering opening membership to what I call professionals in the numismatic support industries, such as publications.
1: And I think it, it provides some greater levels of connectivity. Uh, again, you know, one of the the best parts about being an IEPN member is that I'll go to these congresses and talk to somebody I never thought about before, and and have a new avenue of business. And I, I can't see how that wouldn't uh, be a, a very important tool for any of the um, peripheral organizations uh, or
0: um, you know uh, companies like like uh, we're talking about. I'd like to congratulate you, and I ask that you keep us in the loop about things related to the IAPN and the issues it is working on uh, and its success in growing the professional bonds between dealers uh, in America and overseas. And it's always great to have you.
1: Yep, that sounds great. I thank you very much for having me on your show. Thanks.
0: If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Remember, you can download every episode of the Coin Week podcast for free on the iTunes store. Uh, For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.